name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. What makes a financial market safe and efficient? What can a jurisdiction do to support the growth and development of its capital markets? And how can regulators attract international participation while upholding the interests of domestic players? These are some of the questions we'll be considering in this episode of The Swap. We're turning east to China, which the sports fans among you will know has just hosted the Winter Olympics. As well as playing an increasingly active role on the global stage, it's also become an economic giant, with its economy now second only to the US. Some of the numbers are truly staggering. China's nominal GDP has reached nearly $15 trillion, while its banking sector has surpassed $50 trillion in assets. It's also taken some big steps to liberalise its financial markets in recent years. But despite this, China's derivatives market is still relatively small, representing only about 1% of global turnover. That could be about to change following the publication last year of China's draft futures and derivatives law, a landmark piece of legislation that includes provisions on recognising the enforceability of closeout netting. As always, I'm joined by Scott O'Malia, ISDA's CEO. Scott, this all sounds very exciting, but why is this legislation so important? Thanks, Nick. Simply because netting is the single most important thing any country can do to improve the safety and efficiency of its derivative markets. Closeout netting allows all parties to reduce their obligations down to that single payment due from one party to another, which drastically reduces counterparty risk and the potential for market disruption in the event of a default. That sets the legal foundation for robust and vibrant derivative markets with broad domestic and international participation. Of course, it's not the only thing countries need to do to further develop their domestic derivative market, but it's really the most important step. So we're very excited about this legislation. And we're working hard to clarify the draft provisions to ensure it leads to full recognition of netting. Okay, great. Nice summary. But we have two guests today who will be able to help us delve into the details and talk us through what it means and what comes next. Jenny Costco is Global Head of Government Relations and Regulatory Strategy at London Stock Exchange Group, or LSEG, in Hong Kong. Jenny is fairly new to this role, having recently joined the company after 18 years with an investment bank. And Chong Lu is Capital Markets Partner at Linklaters in Hong Kong and heads the firm's derivatives and structured products practice in Asia. So let's bring on the guests and get started. Jenny and Chong, thank you very much for uh, coming onto the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Let's get started with the big picture. Chinese authorities have made incremental progress over the recent years in developing a domestic derivatives market by removing barriers to international participation. What are the benefits of a strong, vibrant derivatives market in China for China's capital markets and its economy? Jenny, can we start with you? Sure, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And it's really an exciting time to be an observer to China's developing derivatives market. So to answer your question, a strong and vibrant derivatives market will allow China to make further progress towards diversifying its financing model from the current bank-led one, where domestic commercial banks are the main intermediary providing loans to a capital markets-led one. It's quite interesting that we're seeing other jurisdictions around the world aiming to make similar transitions. The EU Capital Markets Union is one example. With a more diverse financing model, we can expect to see greater foreign participation, increased liquidity, 
and enhanced product availability to follow. And in turn, this will allow Chinese financial institutions and corporates to hedge at lower prices and more effectively manage their risk through using a greater variety of hedging tools. So practically, what is the result? Well, in the context of China's dual circulation strategy, firms will have more capital to allocate towards innovation and business expansion, thereby boosting domestic circulation and making the market more attractive to international investors, promoting international circulation. Put simply, lower costs plus better risk management equals more efficient resource allocation and greater focus for Chinese firms on serving the real economy. John, anything to add to that? Oh, yes. It's really exciting times. The derivatives market is now finally opening up. Futures market is is opening up. And not just that people can invest in the futures market. They can also be a player. So foreign houses can now own up to 100% futures company in China. And in the OTC market, is also very exciting. As mentioned with the uh, interbank market or the securities firms, equity market or the commodities market. They're all different stages of opening up. It's really early days, but more to come, Scott. Now, last year, China introduced the draft futures and derivatives law, which includes provisions that would recognize the enforceability of closeout netting, the holy grail of derivative markets. It is that we've always been clear that netting enforceability is the single most important thing a country can do to really set the groundwork and improve the safety and efficiency of its derivative markets. So just how much of a game changer do you think this netting legislation will be? Chong, let's start with you. Yes, Scott, it would be, uh, in my mind, absolutely a game changer. Today, the China derivatives market is really suboptimal. It's really not as big as it can be. The main reason is because of this uncertainty revolving around the enforceability of closeout netting. So when this is cleared up and when it's worth the paper it's returned on, volume will go up. And importantly as well, netting will bring down the cost of trading for Chinese houses as well as the foreign houses. So again, the volume would go up. And that coupled with what Jenny mentioned earlier, the opening up of the market, there'll be more international firms going into China to to trade and there are more Chinese houses going out to to trade. And, And it's not just trading. We anticipate that people want to be an active player in the market. So I foresee that the international houses, they actually want to be a trading member, a clearing member of the Chinese market. Likewise, Chinese houses want to go international and become a clearing member, a trading member, which they cannot do today because of this issue. So there will be real structural changes to the market, Scott. Jenny, anything to add to that? Sure. I fully agree with what Chong said netting is a key building block for derivatives market development anywhere in the world, as you mentioned, Scott. And maybe to put some practical examples behind that, the lack of closeout netting in China has historically been a major barrier both for foreign participation and further growth of Chinese financial institutions. Now, the top four of the 10 largest banks by AUM globally are Chinese. And without netting, these entities often faced higher transaction costs and must provide margin on a gross basis when they enter into financial transactions with foreign counterparties. So implementing closeout netting will enable Chinese banks to benefit from lower transaction costs and better pricing. And as I was saying before, allowing them to deploy more capital to the local market rather than tying it up to manage credit risk. 
More broadly, Chinese government bond issuances are growing at over 20% annually. To support this balance sheet expansion, a functional derivatives market will become more important with closeout netting being a key enabler. Finally, increased holdings of Chinese government bonds with benchmark inclusions at around 5 to 10% of weightings currently also highlights the need for passage of the futures and derivatives law as this asset class is held in meaningful quantity by institutional investors who would prefer to have a hedging option without material basis risk. Those are some great statistics, Jenny. I'll throw out another one. We have approximately 70 jurisdictions with netting. China is not one of them. Is a major, obviously, the second largest economy. And as you noted, the enormous size of their banks, it's noticeably different and noticeably absent from that community of netting. Chong, the draft legislation was submitted for a second reading of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress in October of 2021. What are the main features of the legislation? And do you have a timetable for implementation? As the name of the legislation indicates, futures and derivatives law. So it's all about futures and derivatives. And importantly, it's the first ever law in China on futures and on OTC derivatives. It's comprehensive legislation. So when it comes to futures, it talks about licensing for all the players in the market. It talks about trading, clearing, and a similar comparable regime for OTC derivatives. So I'll just quickly give us a couple of points, particularly for the lawyers in OTC derivatives. First, significantly for our OTC derivatives, there's now statutory recognition for this legal concept of a single agreement and also protection for close-out netting. When the template agreements are actually filed with the regulatory authorities in China, so the current uncertainties about close out netting, that uh, there's a bankruptcy stay, so you may not close out net when the bankruptcy sets in, yeah, that will be gone because under this new law, it says that close out netting will be enforceable, notwithstanding insolvency. So close out netting will trump insolvency law you know, to the extent that the agreement is actually filed with the uh, uh, regulatory authorities. And the other point, which I think is also equally important, is about central clearing of OTC derivatives. So the law also provides that central clearing will be enforceable, notwithstanding insolvency of any party. So very, very broad, Scott. So, so it's not just close-out netting in the context of central clearing, even collateral enforcement, even default management measures, all of this will be enforceable. And it says, notwithstanding the bankruptcy of any party, so which is again very broad and compelling because it's not just the insolvency of a clearing member, a CCP, arguably even the clients. Notwithstanding all of this, the entire ecosystem is being protected. So in a nutshell, Scott, those are the key features on OTC derivatives. What do you think this means for is the documentation? Well, I think is the agreement has been very well received in China. As we all know, the regulators know about it and CBIRC already sort of, uh, you know, have approved that opinion. So there's no doubt in my mind that you know, it will be registered or that it could be uh, even a, a fast track, <laughs> you know, for no need for registration because it's so prevalent in the market. So I think it will mean kind of a, a lot to the users of the agreement where it is actually will be enforceable uh, in China. That's terrific. What about next steps? When does this come into law? What's the expected timetable? 
There's going to be a third reading in March. That's the next session of the MPC. We hope that, you know, it will be uh, tabled and will be passed as soon as, you know, kind of uh, next month's got. But then that's just the law. Once the law is passed, there's also implementing regulations under the law. So there will be implementing regulations on the futures, the full set, implementing regulations on OTC derivatives, full set, including what we talked about, the filing process as to who can file, what can be filed, how and where and when. All of this devil is obviously in the detail and all of this will need to be worked on. So it will be months, Scott. Obviously, we want it to be tomorrow, but it's going to be months before it all comes together. Well, we've waited a very long time for this to be achieved. We can wait a little longer, of course. (laughs) Now, important as netting may be, we recognize that this is not the end of the road, and regulators, market participants, and other stakeholders need to think about what further reforms and policy measures are going to come next. We published a white paper at the end of last year that addresses this question following extensive dialogue with the domestic and foreign market participants, as well as the policymakers in China. Now, we'll get to some of these recommendations shortly, but what's your general take on what comes next to further develop China's derivatives market? Chang, do you want to start off with that? From a legal perspective, we think after this FDL, Futures Derivatives Law, is passed, there are three areas I think people focus on. One, I think people still focus on netting because netting is a big concept. There are different aspects of netting. So I believe that people will look at cross-document netting, cross-product netting, cross-entity netting, And even people need to figure out the landscape, the netting landscape, because the documents that are filed will be protected by FDR. What about documents that are not filed? People need to scope out the landscape. This is one part. The second part is actually collateral. I think people today, Chinese houses, don't use much collateral arrangements. Cross-border, some, but not a lot. Onshore, practically non-existent. But then with netting becoming enforceable, with the margin rules across the world being applicable, and VM, IM, implementation, initial margin, variation margin will come full force, and people will have to focus on collateral arrangement. So people will be looking at that, and with netting and collateral in place, certainly there will be more product development, Scott. Jenny, do you want to add to that? Sure. I would say on a general level, Scott, three words, regulatory certainty and predictability. So really for international investors, those are three key words that they are very focused on. We've seen the Chinese authorities deepening international cooperation over recent years to promote financial market opening, even amidst the global pandemic. We'd like to see the regulatory certainty and predictability for foreign investors into China, as well as that of overseas investment of Chinese firms. I also want to highlight CCP risk management, and I know we'll get into more specifics later on, but with derivatives comes clearing, and with clearing comes CCP risk management and ensuring that there is no uncapped liability and that there is robust stress testing and other risk management measures. That is something that is critically important and that we hope to see advance further in China. Let's go back to the white paper. The recommendations in the white paper are, are wide ranging and varied, but they broadly fall into four key areas risk governance, market structure, risk management, and regulatory framework. Would you prioritize any of these areas as being particularly important once netting is achieved? Frankly speaking, I prioritize all of those areas. And actually, to be fair, 
the Chinese authorities have been very deliberate and largely successful at taking a holistic approach to reform. And so we expect progress to continue along each of those four areas. However, if you were forcing me to pick one, I would have to highlight market structure as being the next key area of focus following the successful implementation of netting. And ISDA in its white paper makes four recommendations on market structure, which I think are instructive and worth underscoring. Importantly, these recommendations can be implemented at a pace of the regulators choosing. So firstly, increasing the size and variety of the market participant base to broaden and deepen the derivatives market. Second, improving supporting measures to promote the use of credit derivatives. Third, providing institutional investors with a greater variety of risk management tools by expanding the number of derivatives products permitted to be traded. And finally, relaxing barriers and controls on trading activities such as short selling to facilitate greater liquidity. Chong, anything to add? I agree with Jenny that China needs all of those (laughs) that, you know, I was mentioned. Uh, But from a legal perspective, I would say credit risk management, the collateral comes after netting. And I also think that regulatory framework in the next few years will be a big emphasis because with the futures and derivative law coming in, there will be a big bang in the onshore market, you know, like when a new piece of like MIFID, you know, comes in, you know, the whole market is, is impacted. I think there will be a lot of people applying for licenses, changing their rules and getting opinions and all that stuff. There'll be a lot of focus on that in the first few years. Now, one area the paper proposes that you haven't touched on yet is the comprehensive portfolio of products that should be introduced into the market, including government bond futures, which are considered the most effective way of hedging RMB-related interest rate risk. How will this benefit the market using bond futures, Jenny? Sure, Scott. And again, want to acknowledge that the efforts the Chinese regulators have made over recent years towards easing access to the derivatives market, including opening bond futures to a broader range of institutions. And as a result of that, we've seen participation in China's derivatives markets grow and grow. However, it's important to note that the diversity of market participants in the derivatives market in China remains low, with commercial banks still serving as the dominant players. Consequently, these participants have similar trading objectives and strategies, which results in a lack of participants acting as offsetting counterparties, which in turn reduces market liquidity and creates a lot of one-way risk in the system. Put differently, the underlying issue is the inability of market participants to hedge in a liquid and diverse enough pool. So, Bringing in an even more diverse set of participants into China's derivatives markets, including global investors such as buy side, real money, and hedge funds, can help address this issue by enabling further risk diversification for domestic market participants, as well as for international banks who may become intermediaries for these foreign asset owners. A more developed, cleared interest rate swap market, which includes bond futures, is probably the most efficient way for these firms to hedge without basis risk and without having to maintain and churn positions at a shorter frequency, such as through quarterly or monthly roles. Now, LCH has some familiarity with risk management, and this paper also proposes a strengthening of the risk management framework at CCPs to maintain the stability of the market. This would include the stress testing framework, the availability of liquidity and transparency, as well as communication. 
How important are these uh, recommendations to promoting safe and effective derivatives clearing in China? Well, very, very important. And LCH, as you know, is an important part of LSEG's mix of businesses. As we see the volume of derivatives trades cleared through CCPs increase in China and around the world, there really is a need for CCPs to continuously review and strengthen their risk management framework. And, you know, our CCP is no exception. As you will know, in light of the market stress caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been dramatic increases and changes in the margin requirements at CCPs globally. Robustness and adequacy of margin models is a bare minimum, but what is becoming much more topical at present is the transparency and the predictability of the overall process. For example, if clients of a CCP understand how to replicate intraday margin calls, then they can prepare for them. If large intraday variation margin calls are being made as an ad hoc measure, or if initial margin is being increased with few details through an add-on, then these circumstances could lead to a liquidity event and a possible next crisis. In sum, robust simulation-based risk management and full transparency are critical. Thanks, Jenny. Chong, anything to add? Completely agree with that. Just wanted to add that China CCPs in China have felt that, you know, and, and a problem in the past. Many of them are trying to, you know, obviously embrace these international standards as well, but they are not able, for example, to receive DCO registration in the US or the country CCP in the EU. But I think a lot of the time people look at equivalence you know, before, you know, you, you can get and. You know, and, and with the FDL that we talk about, Scott, with the futures and derivatives law, I would put it that this framework will be in place and that will pave the way for this recognition. And hopefully with that recognition, it will allow them to further embrace a global standard. Now, the development of the futures and derivative law has been characterized by a very extensive consultation and outreach to market participants, particularly from the CSRC. How important is it that a similar approach be adopted when it comes to further legislation and market changes in the future? Jenny, you want to start off? It's very important to allow market participants enough time to sufficiently provide input into these processes. They're very complex, but importantly as well, it's key to ensure that firms have sufficient lead time to adapt and implement to the rule changes. And this is particularly important for China as its derivatives market internationalizes further. So for example, when you have a regulatory consultation or other type of technical documentation published, a mechanism could be established to allow for non-PRC participants to use an English version. So being able to have English language documentation so people can digest and understand quickly, especially for foreign market participants, is quite important. Secondly, regulators may consider starting the public consultation process earlier to allow sufficient time to consider feedback from market participants. And then again, allowing sufficient time for industry to adapt to new rules before the changes are implemented. So in the former the European Commission's consultation process is typically a six to eight week process. Sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer, but generally speaking, that is the time frame. And then, you know, for example, as well, MAS in Singapore typically provides a six month window between the closing date of their consultation processes and the implementation of their own rules and requirements. So a couple of different models for regulators to consider, especially as this market is adapting and changing very, very quickly. 
Chong, how have you seen the regulatory structure changing? Well, it's, uh, this extensive consultation was definitely necessary, Scott. I mean, look, when it comes to close-out netting, ISDA has been lobbying, has been speaking to people onshore for the last 20 years, since the first visit in 1998, which I fortunately also took part in. So it's a technical area. That's the only way, actually, to get the right piece of legislation. It's so technical and you really need to talk to the market. But then I'm not sure, though, you know, going forward, it will be as extensive for other legislation, I would say this, Scott, because they do have a lot on their bucket list and which they need to roll out. But I also think that the engagement is important because I always find that you will probably agree that regulators may not really know the market enough and therefore need to have to engage. And likewise, I think China is quite a special market as well. A lot of international players think that they know China. But I think it's a question of degree. How much do you know? It's a market that's quite unique, quite independent. So through that engagement, markets would also learn more. Now, you've both led very distinguished careers, Chong at Linklaters for many years and before that A&O. And as you mentioned, you've been on this journey with us to get closeout netting in China for almost 20 years, despite being a very young man. Jenny, you joined LSEG after 18 years run in the investment banking space. When you combine all of this experience, what advice would you give to a young person embarking on a career in financial services today? Chong, let's start with you. Thank you for that very generous comment, Scott. I would say that it's important to be flexible and to be open. There's, there's a kind of a, a Chinese saying, uh, you know, you learn until you die. In this area of derivatives, it's, um, you know, everything keeps changing very quickly. I was away for two weeks and I came back, I felt outdated, you know. So there's a lot to learn and, and keep changing. And the other thing is, I think it's important to take a long-term view People should consider what, you know, you know, doing their part for the market as well. In addition to thinking about doing a job done or getting a big buck. That way, you know, thinking about the market and thinking about they, they will get out from, from this process uh, a lot more. Well, I, uh, I feel your pain when it comes to changing market dynamics <laughs> as we talk about ESG and crypto all the time now. Jenny, what about you? What advice would you give to a, a young individual starting off? Thanks, Scott. Well, first of all, I completely agree with what Chong said. And I would add to that, number one, your career is not linear. So I would focus on the achievements and victories that you achieve along the way and not be so focused on having the perfect career path. So embracing the twists and turns and opportunities to learn. And secondly, don't be afraid of risk and change. For me, I've always embraced the idea of learning something new or trying something different, whether that was moving from risk management into government affairs, moving from London to Hong Kong, or leaving a firm I was with for many years to a new one. And I felt that I've learned and grown throughout that process. And in financial services, even though it's the same industry, I feel like I almost have a new job every day or every year because it is changing so quickly. And that's what keeps me motivated and interested. Great advice. Thank you very much for joining us today. You've been great guests on a, an important and evolving topic. Thank you for having us. Well, that was a whirlwind tour of some of the key challenges and opportunities China faces in further developing its derivatives markets. As well as tapping Chong's expertise on the draft futures and derivatives law, it was great to hear Jenny's thoughts on the next steps for China's derivatives markets. 
Scott, as you mentioned during the interview, this was the topic of our recent white paper. What's your take on what comes next? Well, it certainly is an interesting time for China. There's no doubt about that. First and foremost, we need to focus on the draft futures laws Chong mentioned. We're working closely with the authorities, market participants, and other industry associations to clarify its provisions and work towards full recognition of netting. Most important issue. This would be a massive step forward, but as Jenny and Chong both recognize, this is not the end of the journey. It's important we identify what reforms and policy measures come next in regulation. That's why we've published our white paper. As we discussed during the podcast, identifies four key areas of focus, risk governance, market structure, risk management, and the regulatory framework. We've already engaged closely with policymakers and market participants on these proposals, and we'll continue to do so in the months ahead. So, as you said, exciting times. Yeah, and we'll be coming back to this topic as it develops, and fingers crossed we'll soon be able to talk about the enforceability of closeout netting actually being confirmed in China. Before we end today, though, there's just time to tell you that we'll be discussing closeout netting and regulatory developments at the ISDA annual general meeting in Madrid on May 10th to 12th. We really hope to see you there. So book your place at agm.isda.org. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.